Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 14th of December 2020 and this is episode 188. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talked to doctoral student Joshua Bilton about his research into the military identities of British conscript soldiers during the First World War. He's currently a student at King's College London. Joshua spoke to me over the interweb from his home in London. And just to note, this is our last podcast this month and normal service resumes after the festive break. We wish you all a great holiday and look forward to seeing you in the new year. Here is Joshua. Hi, Joshua. Welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Uh, hi, Tom. My name is Josh. Um, I'm a PhD student at King's under the supervision of Bill Philpot. I teach alongside my studies. So I became interested in the First World War through my father. Uh, he's been interested in it for about 30 odd years, I think it is. He's written a couple of books. He would generally, when I was younger, show me badges and various bits memorabilia that he collected and so I grew up fascinated by military history. Um, I then for whatever reason didn't do uh, BA war studies or military history but then decided once I'd done my BA to do an MA in uh, the history of war which is where I actually met uh, Bill Philpott um, and took his class uh, which was called Mind, Body and Spirit um, in the First World War and it, it was an interesting situation actually because I I had no, I was really interested in First World War, but I was very much interested in kind of the strategic and tactical side. And so it was the only course that was available. So I thought, okay, well, I'll do it. And I, I did it. And from that, I just gained this absolute passion and fascination with the car, with the with the lived visceral experience, combatants, combatants on both sides. And I think that, no, actually, I mean, I, I believe that is what cemented my decision to actually take, you know, undertake a PhD and then do what I'm doing. So, yeah. So it leads us to our second question what is your phd research about um so i'll give you a brief overview of the research uh so i am looking at the formation of military identities between 1914 and 18 predominantly on the western front um uh, among british conscripts and also the formation of identities or the military identity of british conscripts by other people um so that might be you know the volunteers with regulars or uh, the territorial or the new armies or civilians and the high command um, because I think it's interesting to look at that disparity between the two um, because I think you know our perception of ourselves is very often very different to how other people see it so sometimes it can be the same um, I also consider how identities uh, particularly for the conscripts were shaped by various factors so it's uh, stuff like pre-war socioeconomic circumstances such as age class and then uh, also attitudes towards the war um, and I'm also looking at the experience of war. And so this is kind of the, so it's the, it's the increasing specialisation of the British Army and how this will have then impact the lives of these men. And although this isn't limited to the conscripts, I do think it plays a big part in their formation of identities because by 1916, 17, we, it really is a specialist army. And so you go in, you are assigned a specialisation which very much dictates you know, who you then become. 
become and who feel you are. And, and finally, I mean, I'm also looking at the political and public situation within Britain and how, as I said, that kind of influences them. Um, Two thirds of the research, I should say as well, is concentrating on the identity formed by conscripts and then the rest addresses, as I said, the contemporary uh, attitudes and on conscripts and then the relationship uh, between conscripts and other servicemen on the Western Front and how this developed uh, or in some cases didn't. I think it's important as well to point out that although the research is thematic, it does um, it tends to create a chronological or I have created a chronological narrative and I start with kind of the men who first arrived in sort of uh, 1915, early 16 and then finish with sort of adolescent uh, conscript volunteers as I call them in 1917-18. And so why do you think your research is important? So I think this research is important for several reasons. Um, I think firstly it draws attention to a massive yet almost entirely forgotten section of the British Army fighting during the Western, uh, sorry, fighting during the First World War. Um, if we look at the number of monographs and publications actually on conscript experiences, um, you know, or just, just the conscript in general, it is, you know, it's, it's a handful. So I think that, you know, it's important to kind of focus less on the volunteers and territorials as I think we kind of, you know, we've lost sight of the fact that the British Army was an incredibly diverse um, body of men by 1917-18. Secondly, I think that by focusing on these men, we broaden our understanding of not only what it means to be a soldier during war, but also concepts of gender, uh, masculinity, citizenship, and identity more broadly. Um, I mean, much, much, you know, much of our focus, and rightly so, is concentrated on what it meant to be, you know, a willing participant in war. But uh, what is it like for the men who were not only conscripted, but then suffered, you know, um, hostility as a consequence? Um, and I think this is where it, it demonstrates that, you know, part of that kind of looking at the men who were conscripted and then, you know, received all this, you know, kind of criticism, it's, it's important, you know, it allows us to then look at kind of concepts of masculinity. Um, and it demonstrates, I think, that, you know, we, we need to move away in some way from the sort of binary um, sort of representation um, of men at that time that has to some extent sort of been uh, promulgated within the literature. Uh, so yeah, so there's that. I think the third thing um, and possibly the most important is that we need to get a better understanding or it allows us to have a better understanding of how and why the British Army was so successful during the later half of the war um, or latter. Um, I think that we forget or have lost sight of the fact that, you know, the battles of 30 of, uh, you know, the defence, the spring offensive by the Germans, and then later the 100 days, you know, all of these are, you know, we, we all of these are fought predominantly, not entirely, but, you know, there is a large percentage of men who are fighting who are conscript. Um, and I think we forget about that and the bravery they showed and the sacrifices that they, um, you know, the sacrifices that they, they made. Um, when we look kind of generally at contemporary attitudes or we look at, you know, kind of our own feelings towards compulsory service or what's written, I think, um, about compulsory service. So, yeah, I think, I think yeah, it's kind of three points for why this is important. And so when we talk about military 
military identities. What exactly do you mean by this term? So I think when we talk about identity, and I think I should point out as well, this isn't limited to what I'm going to say now, but I think when we're talking about identities, uh, we could look at it from a very psychological perspective. And so that would be the, 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 the ment- one's mental model of oneself, as it were. Um, but what we're essentially looking at is what and how, what do people feel about themselves? You know, what, what do they, what, what image people form um, or impression of themselves do they form? So this includes, you know, such questions as who are we? Um, what makes us who we are? What are our beliefs? Um, and then this, you know, how does that dictate what we then do? Um, as I said, they're, they're incredibly complex or identity is an incredibly complex um, topic to discuss, which is why I've tried to, within my own research, limit it to, limit it to three questions. Um, so I've got three that kind of stand out when sort of looking at the military identities these men. And the first one is, how did socioeconomic factors influence conscript identities? Uh, second is, did perception of others together with social inventions uh, impact their sense of self? And then the third one is, how did their identities change as a con- consequence of experiences on the Western Front and as the war develops? I think that's important as well. You know, identities aren't fixed, are they? And depending on circumstance and depending on what's going on in the world, depending on what you experience as well, they will change. And so I think it's important to reflect that as well within the research. Um, but an example I had was, you know, a couple were, so um, how do, so you've got a better understanding kind of, you know, how I'm looking at it um, and how these men or, you know, kind of came to understand their own identities. Questions include stuff like, you know, how did individuals who've been told they're less than men, you know, they're, 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 uh, they're emasculated by the fact that they have failed to voluntarily enlist. How do they come to understand their own certain masculinity and then ultimately how do they lay claim to an identity, you know, a masculine identity in particular and also a martial one um, in that sense. Um, we've also got the question of, you know, how did age have an impact, uh, not only on their ability to actually form the uh, duties and functions as soldiers, because, you know, we, I think, sometimes forget, or maybe we don't, maybe it's just me, but, the, you know, being a soldier is incredibly, uh, you, it's incredibly active uh, undertaking, you know, and you need to be, I think, relatively fit and able and think young sometimes to be able to cope with this. But also, on the flip side of that, it, how does age impact your understanding of active service and how does it impact your identity? You know, I think as young people, um, especially 18, 19 years old, you've got a different sense of morality than someone who is in their, you know, mid to late 20s, early 30s. Um, and so, and as well, I think a lot of the literature at the time, you know, is focused towards men of this age or boys, adolescents of this age. So you're, you're you know, being fed this narrative of, you know, fighting for empire, of this, you know, great adventurer. And so, of course, as a young boy, you're very sceptical to these ideas and ideals. So you want to go out there and sort of perpetuate them and be a part of that great narrative. Whereas as, as an older individual, 
um, who, you know, I said, uh, late 20s, early 30s, you're going to be much wiser. You're going to understand what's, you know, kind of what the the narrative is and why it's been um, promulgated. And so we'll be less likely to want form, you know, kind of that that soldierly uh, identity. Um, so, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a difficult, a complex question, I think. And identities are incredibly um, fluid and there are multiple identities for any one person. Um, so, yeah. What were the four broad identities that you have researched and how would you articulate and define them? <laughs> um, okay, so I have identified four broad categories. Um, I should say that these are all, you know, individuals who are conscripted aren't limited to these four categories, but I thought it was important to break them down into these four categories, give me a sort of uh, start on the research, give me an idea of how to then frame their identities and also to understand them as well. Um, but the four identities are, we've got the Derbyite, uh, we've got the conscript volunteers, as I call them, we've got the press servicemen, and then finally we've got the older men. Um, and so the Derbyite were often, from my own research, looking at the Derby report, they were often married men, um, some of them with children, slightly older than the conscript volunteers, um, so, you know, sort of mid-20s, possibly going into uh, you know, late 20s. Uh, they tested their willing, so part of the reason, part of the Derby scheme, if uh, anyone doesn't know, is that what they were trying to do is they were getting to the end of the volunteer system, they were struggling to get individuals to enlist, and so what they said to a lot of people, or what they uh, suggested and, and indicated or promoted, was that if you volunteered now, you could waylay, you could put off your um, enlistment, and so a lot of individuals, um, you know, especially men who were married, I think, particularly, they decided this was a good idea because, you know, for many they did want to serve, they saw it, you know, essentially as their, their masculine duty and their duty as a citizen of the country, but also they had these many you know, um, professional responsibilities. And so, of course, it was a case of, well, how do I get them in order before I, you know, go? And so this kind of gave a lot of those men time. Um, interestingly, they received the largest amount of hostility. I, uh, there are so many accounts of, you know, by comparison to the, 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 the true conscriptors, they might be called, you know, these, these men are quasi-volunteers, but, um, yeah, by comparison to the conscripts, they do receive a lot of, a lot of hostility because it felt that they only volunteered because of social pressure rather than, you know, that they've got other things to do. Because um, a lot of men, of course, did, you know, just enlist immediately, even though they had families. I think it's Laurie Ugolini points out, there's a really, really good account of um, a family after the war who hates the father because he's just, you know, gone straight off the war and they go, well, what about us? You know, you need to look after us. Um, so there's, there's that sort of issue there. But then um, it seems as well from these men, from Derbyites, you know, that they, because they have that bedrock of a family, they do have, they feel as though they have something tight on, even if the ideals of, you know, nation and of empire are particularly high on their the agenda. They at least have, you know, the, the, their family that they want to support. And so for them, it, it's not an easy war, but it's, it's, it helps them kind of get through it, I think. Um, 
then there's the pressed men. So um, they're pretty much what you would expect. Uh, they're individuals who are unwilling to serve or, to, you know, not particularly keen, um, but they do because, you know, they, they're ultimately conscripted. Interestingly, um, again, and I think all of these individuals are interesting, but interestingly, in particular for the uh, press men, a lot of them do serve with distinction and feel as though once they get there that it is their duty. Whether this is, you know, them perpetuating the narrative as many did for folks at home is difficult to say, but it, it there seems as though this time there is a real dichotomy in what they're doing. You know, on the one hand, they bemoan the army and, oh, it's rubbish and I don't want to be here and I don't want to serve and, oh, why have I got to do this? But then on the other, they talk, you know, fervently about their duties and, you know, what they feel is right and noble. Um, interestingly as well, they talk about, um, they talk a lot about how dangerous their roles are, which I think is true of many of the conscripts because then they, they don't have the luxury of being volunteers. They want to lay claim to some service identity. So, of course, talk about how dangerous their role is or how impactful it is or how they um, undertook such hardship, but, you know, ultimately came through and endured it, um, which is what uh, Jessica Meyer talks about in you know, Men of, uh, Men of War, um, about endurance being an important aspect of all of this. Um, I mean, an example is a uh, great guy, William Firth, who he's working in the Ministry of Musicians, prior scription, then realised he's going to be called up, so he scrambles to find a position in the OTC, uh, which is a training corps, then I think the uh, Royal Flying Corps, the RFC, then the Royal Navy uh, Air Service, the RNAS, and then finally he starts talking about driving lorries, and and then after that he is you know, conscripted into the uh, the Army Service Corps, where he, he starts, you know, writing about the fact that although he's you know not keen on being there he's not afraid and that he's going to stick it and that you know he's the only you know, there's a great account of him where he talks about the fact that he's the only one who's doing the work and everyone else is slacking off but not him you know he's not a fool he'll do this blah 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 um, and yeah it's, it's just it's fascinating to see the sort of change in attitude um, and how despite being conscripted they do I think nonetheless try to lay claim to service identity through the sense of kind of I'm doing my duty, as many men did of course. Um, and then there's the older men, so these are individuals like Frank Gray who wrote a great book called The Confessions of a Piver. Um, these individuals were conscripted, they could be anywhere between I think about 30 and 51. I mean initially 41 years of age uh, in 1916 but that's been raised in 1918 I think it is uh, to 51. Um, and because of this, they often had um, substantial familial, you know, family and uh, professional responsibilities. As a consequence of this, I think, and because they'd, you know, they'd been working most of their life, many of them were generally unsuited to military service. Um, you know, a lot of the people who enlisted, um, especially, you know, the volunteers, not so much later on um, to the same degree, but a lot of people, you know, entered the army who had been living very sedentary lives, you know, in the case of Frank Gray, he's a lawyer, um, or solicitor, sorry, um, prior to the war, so has had no real experience of, you know, hard physical um, labour, so I think struggles because of it. There also, I've noticed many of them transfer to non-combatant units um, because, you know, the army is fully aware, and you'll see it as a coming out of many of the uh, sort of non-combatant units in sort of 17, 18, especially in 18, very fit young men to be transferred to the infantry because there's a realisation that 
that you might not be physically fit for the infantry and one of the combatant um, units, being gun corps, etc., but you can at least do your duty, you know, slightly behind the line, um, even in the pay corps if need be. Um, so they ultimately did little fighting. Another interesting point about these men is their age, um, which again seems to a, a lot of them are treated with sympathy because of their advancing age, um, and I think because people are aware of just how difficult they are finding it. Uh, so there's been a number of accounts I've seen where you know people have indicated that because of their age they were you know told don't worry about doing this, or someone else said oh okay well I'll you know I'll take that and you can you know go and help me over there and that'll be a little bit easier. Whether this was also because they just were seen as I, I see the difficulty here is it's whether they were really being looked at with sympathy, which I think in some cases they were, or whether people go, well, I just don't want that person next to me. If we put them down the end doing something simple, which is easy, then at least they're out of the way. And if anything happens, at least the man next to me hopefully knows what he's doing kind of thing. Um, so, yep, that's the other men. And then finally, there's the country volunteers generally. Was it most of them are quite young, um, 17, 18, 19, sometimes 20, um, who have been denied, especially for the 18, 19-year-olds, they've been denied the chance to enlist volunteer, um, but, you know, a nonetheless keen serve. So they would have been sort of, you know, 19, 14, 15, 16, or 17. Um, and because of conscription, they are you know, called up, um, which I think causes them a lot of consternation. You know, some talk about the fact that they were desperate to serve and tried to enlist, you know, prior to being conscripted, but weren't able to because their mother got involved, etc. Um, there, I mean, one of the things you find with the conscript volunteers is the other men are particularly keen on them. You know, they look on them a bit like the other men with sympathy. There's also some great newspaper articles that talk about the fact that they don't believe that the term conscript should be applied universally, universally especially to these men, uh, because for many of the, 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 the young adolescent boys, they did actually do an incredibly good job and, you know, kind of calling them conscripts or, you know, distributing service medals that would indicate that they were conscripts is just um, it's um, and in some ways denigrates their memory um, which I find so interesting um, they also as I said were incredibly keen incredibly fit for this reason a lot of them seem to have applied for um, positions like uh, the, uh, the the machine gun corps or they've become snipers or even Lewis gunners I think this is a combination of the fact that they're physically so they can carry the weapon to begin with but also that young men um, I need to bit more research into this but I mean uh, what's name uh, James Robert has indicated this in his book um, called Killer Butterflies where he talks about the fact that you know, men do uh, who are young you know they, they do have a propensity to want to kill and you know the idea of going to war as I said earlier is um, they're enthusiastic about it so I think you know for them getting to grips with the enemy and having a machine gun or a weapon that will allow them to do so is quite important um, yeah I mean generally they're also as I said they're, they're looked upon as I indicated earlier they're looked upon with a lot of um, respect initially however many of them are kind of dismissed as boys when they first arrive you'll notice they're kind of the uh, battalion commander or you know men within the ranks and oh, these boys have just arrived what are they going to do ultimately over time as I said many of them kind of uh, disprove these assertions and I've got an example here of a staff captain in the 27th brigade who, who declares that you know all of his 
many heroes, but even you know, even so, uh, even some of them little lads of eighteen and nineteen who have never been out before. So there's clearly, you know, they're, they're supplying uh, the fact that they're so uh, that they're so proficient because of their age. I think that you know, kind of ultimately lends itself to um, them. Uh, so yeah, there there are the four identities. Um, like I said, they're subject to you know, they 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 are more fluid than that. Uh, and I think there's many more identities within that, um, but they're the four overarching identities, as it were. Could you tell us about how the perception of uh, conscripts was prevalent amongst sort of uh, commanders and soldiers who were already serving when when these pressed men arrive in the trenches? Um, so this is an interesting. It's it's a it's a question that I think has people assume there is an answer to. Um, I think we base a lot of our assumptions on the fact that uh, when they first arrived and when the conscription is starting to come about, a lot of animosity within the newspapers, there's a lot of animosity among serving members, especially the volunteers towards these individuals. You know, some great quotes of people saying, oh, they are useless, you know, how dare they, um, that I don't want to be paid the same amount as them, um, I won't be, you know, they should have their own service battalions and things like that so that we can distinguish between the two of them. In over time, a lot of those attitudes change. Yes, for some people, they remain the same. I mean, I found a um, quote uh, of a guy in 1918 who said, you know, he swears vehemently and then says, you know, give me a volunteer any day. These conscripts are lazy, shiftless, useless individuals. And you're like, whoa, okay. <laughs> Well, I mean, you really don't like them. Uh, but for a lot of people, you know, I found a number of quotes where people uh, who have been there for a couple of years, who are clearly new army volunteers, they've, they've learned to adjust these individuals. Um, in one case, uh, there's one guy who says, you know, a lot of these individuals, they don't want to be in the army, but if you work in such a way or you manage to persuade them without ordering them or barking at them or threatening them, then they're quite happily to um, acquiesce and do what you say, which I thought was really interesting, you know, because there's, there is very much, and this is something that's been highlighted, I think, with uh, a lot of research more recently. I think Laura uh, Rowe does this in her book on the Royal Navy, but there's a lot of give and take. Um, Helen McCartney does it as well. You know, there's a lot of give and take within the British Army, and that actually, you know, it's not just you will do this, you'll do that. It, okay, well, we said this, but now we've got to have a bit of a discussion around it, too, if you will. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to think of any other. Oh, there's, I mean, Frank um, Richards is a great example. He talked about individuals who arrived prior to the Battle of Passchendaele, um, or 30, and, um, or, uh, and he talks about the fact that you know, one guy arrives, he's been conscripted, he was previously going to have to go into, um, he was going to well, decide to go into the ministry and wanted to become a um, priest, I think it was, or a vicar, I can never remember which denomination he uh, was talking about. Um, uh, he, you know, he's not interested in swearing, he doesn't want to be a soldier, really struggling with the coarse language. Um, but by the end, and just before he dies, you know, he talks about the fact that he is as good as any man. He's a efficient soldier. He swears like the best of us and drinks as you know us all under the table. And so I think we unfortunately base most of our ideas and their identities off the initial reaction to conscript. But actually, they're much more nuanced than that. You know, it's it's not a clear cut um, as first believed. And finally, Joshua, where can people 
people learn more about your work or when can they learn more about your work? <laughs> um, so at the moment, I've got another two years of PhD. So there's no bookish yet. Um, so I get to the end of uh, my doctoral studies first. But if anyone is interested, then please follow me on Twitter, um, which is Josh Bilton. So that's Josh and then Bilton, B-I-L-T-O-N-3. Joshua, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>